0: The story.
1: My memory of the day we were told, I was sitting on his bed and the doctor stood there and he told us what it was and he told us there was no cure and I think Peter and I both at that point realized that his life was limited and I believe that we both accepted that right at that point.
0: G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax and welcome to The Story. We begin with some questions for you today. What would you do if your spouse of over 40 years was diagnosed with a terminal illness? What would be the best way to spend your remaining time together? Well, unfortunately, that was the case for Margaret Penford, and today we'll find out her and her husband Peter's story and what we can learn from how they spent their last days together. Margaret Penford is chatting with Eric Scatterbo and Councillor Zoe Broomhead in our Melbourne studios.
2: Zoe, as a counselor, you certainly have had to talk to people about this topic. Is that right?
0: Uh,
3: Absolutely. Both in my professional work and in my personal life, I've sat with people as they work through this process any Mm -hmm. number of times.
2: And unfortunately, as we're getting older, the number of people that we know who have a spouse who is dying or has a terminal illness is increasing. It's just a part of life.
3: Certainly. Yeah, we're seeing it just because of stages
2: of life. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I should say that Peter Penford had a big impact on my life and the life of my family because when we came to Australia in 2003, Peter was his studio manager here at the studios and he kind of welcomed us and, well, I used his lawnmower and, and all this kind of stuff. He helped us out, went to uh, see the sites here in Melbourne. So, uh, Margaret, yeah, Peter was a big help in helping us get settled here in Australia. And you were there, too. Yes. <laughs> I think you came on some of the picnics as well.
1: We did. I remember hunting for kangaroos. And
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the Sugarloaf Park and all that. And so, let's, uh, before we talk about the remaining time that you and Peter had together after he was diagnosed, let's talk about the Peter and Margaret story. How did you meet, and, and well, where is Peter from?
1: Well, Peter's from England. He came over here as a teenager, and he Decided he was Australian as soon as he arrived
2: But he still had a touch of an accent
1: <laughs> Oh, yes, he did, yeah yeah. And I was born very locally in Nong, which isn't that far away mm-hmm. But we met at a church youth camp And there was two girls that Peter had his eye on But because he was a short person, he chose me over the other girl Decided <laughs> she was too tall well,
2: So that's how go. we met <laughs> Okay, and then life together, how many children do you have? Oh,
1: um, we have a boy and a girl and they're now both married and my daughter has two daughters and our son has two sons. And, yeah, we had a fairly average, normal life living in the suburbs. Peter worked for Telstra for 37 years. He was always a very down-to-earth um Stable, reliable guy. I, If I summed him up in one word, I'd say he was reliable. He thought that was very boring. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, I really valued the fact that I could rely on him. He was, yeah, faithful and trustworthy and um, all through life. But he got to the point in his late 50s where, I won't go into all the details, but he believed that God was calling him to leave Telstra And to come and work at Reach Beyond full time, which was in ministry, in ministry which was um, a position where we had to provide our own support. So that was quite challenging for him um, so to leave his security. Out, yeah, and faith. Because security was a big thing for him. Yeah, he was that kind yeah. of guy. So he had about um, 12 years, I think it was, mm. as the studio manager for Reach Beyond in Melbourne here.
2: And meanwhile, you were working in Christian I was bookstores. working
1: part-time. I actually worked for the Bible Society, managing a bookstore for them. Yeah. So,
2: um, both people of faith?
1: Yes. Yes. Very much from
2: our childhoods. So, very dedicated, strong in your faith. No. Both- <laughs> okay, well, oh, I think we the had all
1: <laughs> No, I think we had all the usual ups and downs, and I've certainly had times in my life where I've um, felt, you know, a little bit remote from the Lord and uh, struggled through various various times in my life. I had a lot of depression when my children were little and again, Peter was that faithful, solid rock there Mm. with me all the way through.
2: Well, I guess what I was trying to get at, both of you decided in different ways to serve the Lord yes, through your cer- occupations. Yes, yes, okay. yes,
1: certainly later in life,
2: yes. So the picture of Peter that we're getting here is he's a very reliable person. He was kind of your rock in, in yes. your relationship and yes. in your family. Yes. But then he started to have some troubles.
1: In early 2014, he started noticing uh, once on a walk and once on a bike ride that he became very breathless. And he went to the doctor and the doctor didn't take a lot of notice and, you know, friends and everyone just was saying, well, you're getting older, mate, and didn't take it that seriously. But then he started to lose weight and he went through lots and lots of tests and couldn't really find anything particularly wrong. And we had been planning a three-month camping trip to Western Australia because camping and getting out in the bush is one of our great loves. Mm-hmm. So we decided to go ahead with that anyway. And... Um, Yeah, it's in the middle of that trip that I had a very interesting experience one day. I'm not the kind of person who has um, visions or dramatic spiritual experiences, but one day I was reading a devotional book about grief and I felt very clearly God was saying to me that Peter was going to die. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I had a weird sense of peace because I felt God was saying, you will be all right. I will be with you. I will never leave you. You will be okay. And, of course, I didn't tell Peter that. <laughs> mm. um, but
2: you even wrote this down in your journal. I did.
1: I wrote it down in my journal at the time.
2: Now, yeah. do you think the fact that he was having some of these symptoms
1: I think, played a part in that? Or? Yes, I think it did. I think subconsciously we were both beginning to feel that there was something wrong.
2: And he was about 68 at that time?
1: Yes. Um...
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that kind of began the journey of realizing there was something not quite right health wise with Peter.
1: Yes. When we came home from that trip, and he realised that he'd lost more weight, and um, he went back to the doctor, more tests, and then at about the Christmas time, he started to notice other things like he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping, he was actually having difficulty even walking any distance. Um, He was working three days a week at that time. He was hoping to sort of transition into retirement. Mm -hmm. And he'd come home and say, oh, I spent most of the day with my head on the desk. And so we started to realize there was something
2: seriously wrong. More more than just the aging process. Yes. This this is, there's something wrong here. Yes. And how long was it between this time and when he finally was diagnosed with his terminal illness?
1: Um, He became quite critically ill quickly, uh, with fluid buildup around his heart and lungs, so he was put into hospital, and it was it took another four weeks to actually diagnose what the problem was. Which was? Which was amyloidosis, which is a fairly rare condition. Um, it affects different people differently. It's a protein that damages different parts of the body, and with Peter, it was his heart. And by the time he was diagnosed. It had done quite severe damage to his heart and he was basically in heart failure.
2: And how did the two of you react to hearing that he has a terminal illness?
1: My memory of the day we were told, I was sitting on his bed and the doctor stood there, and the doctor almost sounded relieved because I think they were really, you know, struggling with what the problem was. Mm-hmm. And he told us what it was and he told us there was no cure and I think Peter and I both at that point realised that his life was limited Mm -hmm. and I believe that we both accepted that right at that point. Um, Neither of us really struggled at any point with the fact that he was going to die. Really? No. And neither of us really pursued healing now that sounds really strange i know but we both felt that god had given us an acceptance and a, an incredible peace and it was it was a relief knowing what it was it was actually more distressing in the period when we didn't know what it was you know that was the time when we were praying and feeling like god wasn't answering and mm. you know how do we pray what do we do but once we knew, there was almost a sense of um, relief and peace. So you know,
2: that's that's the irony of the situation, yes. that finding out that he has a terminal illness was actually a relief in a sense. Yes. Because yeah. at least now you knew what you were knew dealing with. Knew what we
1: were dealing with.
2: But it was terminal.
1: Mm-hmm. And at that stage, the doctors were saying, you know, he could have a few months, he could have up to five years they really and and doctors don't know people always want to know you know have i got a month or two months um so yes we we didn't really sort of think oh well he's only got a few months we really took on the attitude of well there is a future Mm -hmm. um we don't know how long it will be but there is a future that we can enjoy and yeah
2: okay we'll explore that further just how you did spend The remaining time that you had with Peter, but first, Zoe, what can we learn from her response to that and accepting that he had a terminal illness? Is that a a healthy way? I think Margaret is showing us a beautiful way of handling what
3: is a very painful and life changing process that she and Peter went through, and it's not about. And we we touched on this briefly before the interview. It's not suggesting at all that there wasn't deep pain. Mm in that process but the acceptance allowed you and peter to actually be present for each other to be present to be here and now rather than f- being fighting the process or f- being in denial mm. or, or, and it's not saying that those are the parts of the grief process that so many of us experience aren't valid and real but because you had been doing your work before because of the process you were in and you were able to accept this is where we were at your energy was able to go into let's just be with each other mm. let's just be in this time for whatever time this is we use that word before hunkering mm. in and that's what I hear from you mm. and that, that is a beautiful demonstration
0: You're listening to The Story. Today, Margaret Penford is sharing how she and her husband Peter spent their remaining time together after he was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Also joining us to shed some light on this topic is Councillor Zoe Broomhead. We'll hear more of Margaret and Peter's story when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. I'm Jimmy Colfax. This is The Story. We're continuing with Margaret Penford chatting with Eric Scatterbow and Councillor Zoe Broomhead. As we've been hearing, Margaret received the devastating news that her husband of over 40 years had a terminal illness. And so the question became, what would be the best way to spend their remaining time together?
1: One of the things that we were very determined was to be totally honest with each other Mm. and with other people. I've always felt when I've seen other people who deny what's really happening, I've always felt that that creates a huge brick wall between people and we didn't want that between us. And so I think that was a big part of it, that we were able to just talk totally openly, and and I believe we grieve together. We used mm. to often pray in the mornings, and we'd often cry, we'd often talk about...
2: So, you did grieve? Oh. Well, because you said, yeah. I accepted it, and it, somebody listening no. could you just say, well, no. oh, yeah, I just accepted it, he's, he's going to die. <laughs> but that wasn't the case. No.
1: Um, and Peter grieved, because Peter grieved the losses, mm. you know, when he couldn't walk, he couldn't drive, he couldn't... There were so many things that he couldn't do when... One time, we had problems with our cooler in our house, and he got very frustrated because he couldn't do anything mm. to fix it. And we used to talk about what he was losing, and also, yeah, what I was losing. Mm. And one of my big griefs, and his too, was that we could no longer go camping together,
2: and because mm-hmm. um, you were looking together. forward to your retirement years mm. and camping trips and exploring, mm. and that was being taken away.
1: Yes, he he you know, we didn't have any grand plans, but we'd certainly talked about the fact that he would slowly cut down the amount of time he was giving to Reach Beyond and then we'd be able to go on more trips and, you know, get out in the bush a bit more and things like that. And one of my big griefs was actually, we had a little camper van that was slide on on his ute and I can remember going into it one day to get something out of it and thinking, I'm never going to use this Mm. again. And that was Mm. a huge grief. Mm. You know, it Mm. was a, a... it was a conscious sense of grief. And yes, I think that I probably did a lot of my grieving while he was still alive, still alive because yeah. mm. things we would do. And I would think there will be a time when I won't have Peter here doing, so, you know, to do this. And so
2: accepting that he's going to die, that your time with him is finite, it's limited. Accepting it is not denying that there's going to be pain. And, no. and it sounds like if I'm understanding correctly, Zoe helped me out with this. Mm part of healthy processing of this is to name your griefs. Like, I am... Disappointed. I'm sad that we will not have those camping trips and we will not be able to do X, Y and Z. Yes, absolutely. Grief is about loss and change. And the more
3: you can acknowledge this is the loss, this is the change, this is what's happening, then you can actually sit with that and work through that. And we call that anticipatory grief, all of those griefs that you begin to work with before the person has died. Mm. And you were doing that very intentionally. And, and I think that's what I'm hearing in your your story, so much of this process for you and Peter was very intentional. You were sitting together, you were talking about it, there was open communication with intentional processes taking
2: place. Hmm. So like you said, you were very open with each other that, yes, there is limited time that we're going to have together. What did you do intentionally to make the most of that time?
1: Um, We did lots of things because trips and holidays and camping had always been very important to us. We decided that because we couldn't take holidays anymore, we would go on holidays half a day at a time and we would go out in the bush. Half day holiday. Half day <laughs> holiday. So he's
2: in a wheelchair at this point? Or to the
1: beach, yes. He was in a wheelchair when he went out. He could walk a little bit. But we, for example, we went to Frankston and walked along the boardwalk. And there he discovered that boardwalks and railings are not built for people in wheelchairs Mm -hmm. because the board is at
2: eye level. Mm -hmm. All he's seeing is the board. (laughs) And
1: same thing happened when we went to Studley Park to walk over the Swing Bridge. Same thing. Um, You were having a good time, though. Yeah, yeah. I was having a great time. We went and we'd we'd take a picnic lunch and go and sit somewhere and have a picnic lunch We went on some walks in parks, and we had some funny experiences. One time, we decided to go on a particular path, and there happened to be a tree that had fallen down over the path. And because he could walk a little bit, he had to get out of his wheelchair and climb over the the tree.
2: tree. (laughs) But he was determined to do it.
1: Lugged the wheelchair over the tree, (laughs) and then another time we went to another park where we went down a fairly steep hill, and then we realized that the other side was even steeper, and I would never get him up the hill. So then we turned around to go back, but I couldn't actually push him up the hill. <laughs> so he had to get out and walk. Walk up the hill. Which was quite difficult for him, but we just laughed about it. Mm. And uh, another time we were in another park where the path was had lots of stones and tree roots and, you know, here he is jiggling along <laughs> in his wheelchair. But he was just able to still enjoy, you know, a little bit of... Mm. and. Mm. Um, yeah, and offset the the losses and offset the limitations. Mm-hmm. So,
2: and of course, everybody's experience is going to be a little bit different. So, in Peter's case, he was able to do some things even though he had the terminal illness. Yes, yes. And so you're saying this is what you did. You're not necessarily saying this is the right fit for everybody in your situation. Oh
1: no, because it depends on you know who you are, the kind of person. He he also was very determined to get to church. Mm-hmm. And so we would go late so that he didn't have to talk to people beforehand and get too tired and then he would, you know, talk to a few people afterwards and then when I could see that it was starting to distress him then we'd nick off home again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you became a finely and tuned team. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And worked out. Working what worked. out what would work and you mm. know, for us and what wouldn't. Yeah. That's
2: that sounds like that was very helpful that you were just completely honest with each other.
1: Hmm. is that right? Oh, I think so I think that was a big part of it
2: and accepting that yes unless the Lord decides to miraculously heal him which you were, we quite, were quite open for that possibility yes. Yep. but if it doesn't happen you were at peace with that hmm. as well
1: hmm. and he found, uh, well, we both found that you know Things that people wrote to us were often helpful He, Right at the very beginning We had a verse on a calendar um, Psalm 46.1 I think it is God is my refuge and strength A very present help in trouble And that became his key verse And when he was in hospital I had it written up on the wall And uh, he really believed That God took him into a place of refuge So that was very important to him and we chose to look for the positives and look for the things that we could be grateful for. Because
2: it would be so easy to not yeah, look at the positive. Yeah. oh, very. was me. Very.
1: Little things. Like we had built our house about six years previously and we sort of half-jokingly at the time said we're building this for our old age so it has no steps, it has no shower recess, it just has a wet room. Um, so you
2: built it yes, not knowing what was going to happen, but it was perfect. For someone in a wheelchair. <laughs>
1: Um, so all sorts of things like that yeah we could just see how God even the fact that amyloidosis is a very rare disease and there's only three specialists in Australia but one was half an hour away from our home in Box Hill Wow! Um, so many things like that that we could just see God's goodness Mm -hmm. we could see his love for us we could even see God's power and one of the things that I felt a lot of Christians around me were saying, you know, God should heal him. And it was almost as if, if God didn't heal him, he wasn't powerful. Hmm. But we were seeing his power just in our everyday experiences and our everyday life. You were seeking it out. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I guess so.
2: Mm. Yeah, Zoe, I wanted to ask you about the attitude of gratitude that Margaret and Peter had. Yeah. How helpful is that in a uh, situation look, like this? I, I
3: think it's absolutely incredibly powerful. Um, I, I heard a phrase recently, think about what you think about. And mm. if, if we're only seeking out what is negative and what is bad then that's what our mind is going to focus on. But if we have that attitude of gratitude and l- intentionally look for those things that we can be grateful for, and I can cite clients going through chemo, one client who, and I have consent to tell this because I have an album of theirs, who would take a photograph every single day and put it in an album and say, this is the thing I'm grateful for today. And what a beautiful focus to have, mm. to give an intentional focus of gratitude through what is, a very difficult and painful time and that's what I'm not saying mm. you were taking photographs but I'm saying you found your own way of being very intentional to be thankful for the things that you could mm. be appreciative Actually, of.
1: Actually Zoe, I didn't take many photographs but mm. I made a list on my computer yes. of things I could thank the Lord for and I mm. got up to about 500.
3: Wow. <laughs> oh, isn't that fabulous? Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> mm.
1: Just little things like, mm. you know like Peter, like my children, like flowers, like mm. yeah, the sunshine. like yeah.
3: And it is. It is finding mm. those things. And clients will tell me I went back to my photo album mm. or my list or my whatever and just went through it. And it's just a reminder for me of the things that are keeping me going and holding
2: me in there. Well, unfortunately, our conversation has gone by very quickly. So kind of in conclusion, wrapping this up, Margaret, Well, we know that about a year ago, Peter did die of the terminal illness. Mm. Any concluding thoughts of what you've learned through all this?
1: Oh, I've learned so much and I've gained so much. Um, I miss him dreadfully, but since Peter died, I've been amazed at how at peace I've been, how I'm so aware of God being with me.
2: Zoe, any concluding comments?
3: I I think we've just been hearing this lovely, painful but lovely story of how Margaret and Peter hunkered in. They pulled Mm. together and drew close to God. And whether it's a terminal illness or some other form of life crisis, that is how people get through well. Mm. And I think this is just a, a lovely demonstration of how we can face very painful situations and come through and still be growing in our spirituality, in our faith, in our self, and come through in a, in a healthy way, mm-hmm. but not diminishing the pain of the experience. Mm-hmm.
2: Margaret Penford, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today.
3: Thank you,
0: Eric. Zoe, thanks for sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. Well, losing a loved one is definitely not an easy thing to go through but it was extremely encouraging to hear how Margaret and Peter Penford made the most of their last days together and how their faith in God helped them get through even the most terrifying and trying times. It's comforting to know that if we ever find ourselves in Margaret's situation, God is there for us and will give us strength and the peace that passes all understanding. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time
3: on The Story. We made a commitment early on to say whatever the future holds, we will live it well. Every day we will seek to live well. We'll make a commitment, even the dark days, to live it well. And there was lots of hope that, in fact, the treatment would be appropriate and in extending Jenny's life. But uh, no treatment was long-term successful.
0: Once again, we'll be looking at the question, what do you do when your spouse has a terminal illness? This time, Pastor Bill Brown will share how he and his wife, Jenny, spent their remaining time together and what God taught him through that experience. That and more next time. The Story, just another way vision is connecting faith to life.